houses. Thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if you want to turn to 1 Samuel 12, 1 Samuel chapter 12, that's where we're going to be. Uh, in the bulletin, the title for the sermon is Remember, Consider, Obey. I shortened the title to just Remember. So that means the sermon will be shorter, right? <laughs> That's what Andy's always pulling for. One of the great dangers for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is forgetting who we are. Well, we can fall prey to viewing the church, like Dean said, merely as a social organization to which we belong. Uh, maybe you see the church as a convenient social activity, a nice occasional add-on to your consumer life. It's a place where you go to get a shot of Jesus to get you through. But is this what church was meant to be? Is that really our identity? Israel faced identity crises like this many times in her history, and perhaps none more so than in the chapters that we've covered in recent weeks. The people, it tells us in 8 verse 20, longed to be like all the nations. And thus they demanded that Samuel the prophet anoint a king to reign over them. You see that in chapter 8 verses 6 and 20. He says I'm not on. Oh, I was only halfway on. There we go. Um, but now we come to chapter 12. On the heels of the great military victory we looked at in chapter 11. And Samuel is about to give his final ad address as a judge of the people. He's ruled over them for decades. And though he's going to continue in his prophetic office, his time as a judge comes to a conclusion in this chapter. So we're going to read the first five verses and we're going to see in these verses the innocence of Samuel. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am, testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken, or whose donkey have I taken, or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. They said, You have not defrauded us, or oppressed us, or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. So Samuel here draws the attention of the people to some obvious facts. First, in verse 1, he's obeyed their voice. They, they demanded a king, and here Saul is. Samuel, obeying the voice of the Lord, obeyed the voice of the people, and he gave them the king that they wanted. There also seems to be a contrast that he's making in verse 2 between himself and Saul. He says, I have walked before you from my youth until this day, but now it is the king who walks before you. Walking before the people in this context would have meant functioning as their leader, the one who goes ahead to be the point man. Samuel has been that, but here he is, an old man with some worthless sons, and the people have given up on him, and they've given up on the judges as a way of ruling Israel. They demanded a king, and now they have one. 
But Samuel wants to make clear that this is not the result of some massive moral failure or corruption on his part. Here I am, testify against me before the Lord and behold before his anointed, he says. Uh, what a bold statement. Samuel can stand up. He's confident. They cannot land any punches against him if they want to call him out for anything. It's as if he's saying, really? You, you thought you needed someone to replace the guy who was actually honest in a leadership position? Good luck with that. And he's exactly right. They, they have nothing to say to him. You have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from anyone's hand. There is no corruption present in Samuel, and the people know that full well. Why is that important? I think it's important because Samuel is going to be making some serious accusations against the people later in the text, telling them that they have rebelled against God, that they've done evil things. And the people cannot have an escape valve of saying, but what were we supposed to do? We had to ask for a king. No, they did not have to ask for a king. It was their own willfulness and lack of faith that brought them here, and they need to know that. Samuel is innocent in their eyes, he's innocent in Saul's eyes, and he's innocent in God's eyes. So the next thing we see is the guilt of the people in verses 6 through 18. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jeroboam and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord your God was your king. And now behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. So in verses 6 through 11, Samuel narrates for the people a history that would have been familiar to them and is likely familiar to many of us as well. It's a story of God's faithfulness to a faithless people. The people head into Egypt to escape famine back in Jacob's day, and eventually they are oppressed, and they cry out to the Lord, and he delivers them. 
by the hand of Aaron and Moses. They come into the promised land then, and they forget God yet again. He turns them over. It says he sold them into, God sold the people into the hand of Sisera. He turns them over to the hands of their enemies, and they cry out again. It's like God is using the enemies of the people as a, as a method to wake them up to their need for him. And when they cry out, what happens? Every time, without fail, he sends a deliverer. He sends a savior from Jerubal, which is Gideon, to Barak, to Jephthah, and now to Samuel himself. Each of these, along with the other judges that we read about in the book of Judges, were God's answer to the needs of the people. When they repented of their idolatry and trusted in the Lord, he delivered them. He had always been faithful. To, to quote Old Testament scholar Joyce Baldwin, she says, In order to understand their own situation in relation to the covenant God, their covenant God, those of Saul's generation needed to see how they had been brought to their land and had experienced both defeat and victory depending on their loyalty to the Lord. Even in the times of apostasy, once they turned to the Lord in repentance, he had sent deliverers. But how would they respond to this last time? Nahash, king of the Ammonites, draws near, and instead of pleading with God for mercy, they cried out for a king. They had a desperate need for God, and they grasped for a man instead. To demonstrate just how God thought about this, Samuel calls down a sign from the Lord. Verse 16, Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Now, wheat harvest would have been in May or June, which was after their rainy season. And it would have been unheard of to have rain in May or June. And thus it would have been a sure sign. If, if these thunderclouds roll in and start dumping rain, it would be a sure sign of God responding to Samuel's prayer. And further, it would have been potentially devastating to the people who depended on that wheat crop. And if the storm was bad enough, it could have damaged their mature wheat. The last thing any farmer wants is for a giant storm to come in and destroy his crops. But the thunder and the rain do come. God has spoken. Samuel is innocent before the people, and the people are guilty before the Lord. So how should they respond? Verses 19 to 25 tell us how they do respond and how Samuel wants them to continue responding. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. 
For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. So the people gathered here at Gilgal seem to be sensitive to the word of the Lord through Samuel. Or if they're not actually sensitive to the words of God, they at least recognize uh, act of divine providence when they see it and they're scared. And they recognize a supernatural sign when they see one. And they say, we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. But Samuel has encouragement for them. He doesn't say, oh, but it really wasn't that big of a deal. It wasn't evil. No, he says, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. <laughs> he, he, he does not brush away what they've done, but he does have encouragement for them. Because the same God who rescued Israel from Sisera and from Pharaoh and from the Moabites and from the Philistines is present in their day. If they will but remember that he was their God and they are his people and repent of their sins and trust in him. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully, Samuel says. Samuel's message for the people is clear. God loves you and it pleased him to set you apart for himself, for his namesake, for his own reputation, for the sake of his own honor and glory, God will not forsake you. It reminds me of Psalm 23. The psalmist says, you lead me in paths of righteousness for your namesake. But they must remember that Yahweh and Yahweh alone is their God and not turn after vain and worthless gods of the people around them. They must keep their focus on him. So how do we bring these lessons home to roost today? I told, I told Andy, like, this is probably going to be a little more application-heavy than most of my sermons. Um, I, I want to spend some time thinking about this. I, I would contend that as we read this chapter, chapter 12, that the fundamental issue the people of Israel suffered from was amnesia. They forgot who their God was, and thus they forgot who they were. How can we guard ourselves from that same fate? How can we remember? The first thing to point out are, are a couple of personal and private habits that are fundamentally important. Do you read your Bible regularly? And Dean was talking about that in his testimony, like, coming to a point where they started reading the Bible and like how that changed their lives, right? I mean, I think that's a fair way to characterize it. Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. How can that righteous man meditate on the word well first of all he must be consuming it in some way to meditate on it and then thinking about it and, and meditation it would it would seem to be implying something that moves beyond a mere cursory reading to imply a, a chewing a mulling process that would either require a slow meditative reading style i, I remember when i was taking uh, a bible study class and our, our teacher he, he taught us to read with CPRs, read carefully, prayerfully, repeatedly, slowly. I tried later on to rearrange those letters to be more spiritual and start with prayer and so on and so forth. And then I realized he said CPRs so that I would actually remember them. 
<laughs> uh, and it, but carefully, prayerfully, repeatedly, slowly. You either have to read that way or memorize what you've read so that when you're away from it, you can keep thinking about it and keep thinking about it and keep thinking about it. And we need to pray. And when I was writing this, I initially wrote, of course we need to pray. I wrote, of course, we need to do that because you all know that the pastor is going to say you need to pray. <laughs> but I, I took, of course, out of that initial sentence because prayer isn't something we should take for granted. Assume that it's something that's just as a matter of course is going to happen. That's how we forget it is when we think about prayer like that. That's how I forget it. We need to realize what's actually happening when we pray. We are coming before what Hebrews 4.16 calls the throne of grace. We must constantly despair of our own wisdom and strength and turn our gaze heavenward. We need to pray. And these two simple, personal, private actions will take you a long way down the road to remembering God day by day. But if I'm going to be totally honest with you, I doubt if on their own they will sustain you in the long run. You're going to need something more than just personal Bible reading and prayer. And the something more that we need is the church. We need one another. You, you see, in the New Testament, there's never any such thing ever, even imagined by the New Testament writers as, as a Christian who's unchurched or, or detached even loosely from the body of Christ. To be in union with Jesus is to become a part of his body, functioning together with other members, feeling their joys and pains, happiness and sorrow, feeling these things together, worshiping together, remembering who he is and who we are together. To, to come to Christ is to become a part of his bride. To be part of those for whom he laid down his life and whom he currently washes in water with the word as Ephesians 5 says we become part of the church as individuals you have to personally it's like Dean was talking about that personal relationship with Christ you have to trust Jesus to pay for your sins no outside person or force or institution church can make that change inside of you that, that's a change that's between you and God you have to do that business but in becoming, in coming to him, you become a part of his people. And there's a real sense in which we are called out of ourselves and into the assembly of called out ones, the ecclesia, the church. Being a Christian really isn't just between you and God. It starts there. And that, that piece continues to be important all through your life. But it's, it's something that's between you and God and the church and it's then lived out before the whole world. It's a personal decision with public implications. It, it might interest you to note that the word saint or called out one in the New Testament is virtually always used in the plural, saints, referring not to isolated individuals but to churches. The only exception is in Philippians chapter 4, verse 21, where Paul says to greet every saint 
in Christ Jesus, something that in the context of Philippians 4 would be assumed to be happening as the church gathers together, and there they all are gathered. All the saints are there. So I want to spend the rest of this sermon thinking about how the church as a body and the church meeting, this thing that's happening right now specifically, serves to jog our collective memory, calls us towards a vision of who we are together as the body and bride of Christ, helps us to remember who we are. Man, every time I'm saying that now, I'm just thinking about Lion King, where Mufasa's like, remember, remember who you are. <laughs> we, don't, we don't need some monkey to haul us out into the, the great wide open spaces to tell us that. We can come... We can come to church while Rory like, reacted to that more than I thought she would. Uh, how, how, does the, how does church remind us of who we are? I want to begin with where our services start, where we spend a lot of our time, the reading of scripture. So if you would turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, I'm not going to have you turn to all these scriptures just for the sake of time, but just this first one. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. The Apostle Paul, he's writing to his, his young protege, Timothy, who's leading the church at Ephesus. He says to him, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Many evangelical churches who would teach a high view of the Bible and spend a lot of time devoted to teaching forget the very foundation upon that which that teaching is built publicly reading the Bible. I, I know it can probably feel tedious at times when we read all the way through these longer passages of Scripture, but I am utterly convinced of this fact, that the Word of God is inspired in its every detail. Jesus says every jot and tittle, every dot, every iota is inspired by God and has the power to pierce the heart and soul and to transform our hearts and lives. We come together to remind ourselves of the content of this word, what the book teaches, and, and preaching can help there, but there's also some sense in which it's important to just collectively sit or stand and hear the word of God wash over us, remembering that it is the word of God that is used by the Spirit to bring about new life to waken dead hearts, to call believers over and over again to renewed trust and repentance, to, to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. No mere human words can accomplish such a task. And so we come together collectively and submit ourselves to what God's word has to say to us. 1 Peter 1.23 tells us, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. And we gather together week in and week out to hear God's word read to us as a body, to remember that his word is the source of our life. The, the thing that flows naturally from a devotion to reading the word is a commitment to teach and proclaim what the word means, the meaning of what has been read. This goes all the way back in the Old Testament to Nehemiah 8.8, where we read that the Levites, under, under the direction of Ezra, read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people would understand the reading. They read clearly a phrase which could be translated paragraph by paragraph, and then helped the people understand what God was saying. 
the most solemn charge I can find anywhere in the New Testament on any topic. If you're still in 1 Timothy, you can turn over a couple pages to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Verses 1 and 2. Again, Paul speaking to Timothy, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And if you read the the verses before and after that charge, it's obvious. God thinks that his people will need corrected. They will need encouraged. They will need provoked, and they will need pastored. And the chief means he gives for accomplishing that task is the proclamation of the word of God. And so we gather week by week, not because there's some great preacher to hear, but because God has chosen to speak through the medium of his word being proclaimed in a particular time, at a particular place, to a particular gathered people. God has a word for me and for you each Sunday. And we hear it by coming together to hear the word taught. Where else in your life are you going to hear of Christ's payment for your sins? Where else are you going to learn of his coming kingdom, the center of our true citizenship? Where else can we look around as we're hearing these things and realize, I'm not alone. I've got other brothers and sisters who are in this with me, receiving these truths. I I mean, I, I love... I'm a podcast junkie. You know, I love listening to sermon podcasts and podcasts where we're learning about scripture. And I know a lot of you still listen to Christian radio. And like these are these are good gifts from God for which we can be thankful that we've got other places where we can receive teaching throughout the week. But there are no replacement for gathering and hearing the preached word of God together with other believers. And remembering that we are a people called out and created by the word of God. To continue the earlier quotation from 1 Peter, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. We are the people of the gospel, a gospel which was preached to us and continues to be preached to us. We gather and remember who we are, those purchased by the blood of Christ, sent out with the message of his reconciliation into the world. The third practice that we enter into week by week is that of corporate prayer. In Acts 2.42, we, we kind of get what are the, like the, what's the paradigm? What were the things that were most important to the early church. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we read, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Prayer was one of the key things that brought together those early believers. And of course, if, if you keep reading in Acts 2, you see that this wasn't just reserved for like once a month or a couple times a year. They had a prayer time. It was day by day, verse 46, attending the temple and breaking bread together in their homes. We're coming under the word of God together, but it won't do us any good if the spirit doesn't blow, if if he doesn't come and help us to understand. If God doesn't take the words and open the eyes of our heart that we might see and understand them, 
then we could read all day long and I could preach for hours and we could sing our hearts out for days and it wouldn't matter. We have to go to him and ask that he would work. This is part of why we pray the Lord's Prayer together every week. I know that's the sort of thing where uh, it, it could seem like it would just be a rote ritual and it can become that, but it doesn't need to be. Do you ever contemplate as, as we're praying that we are lifting our voices together using the very prayer that Jesus himself taught us and asking for the very things he wants us to ask for? And so in that moment, I can know my heart is aligned with Scott, with Linda, with Andy, with Jim. I can know that we are praying a prayer that God will answer because Jesus himself taught it to us. Private prayer functions partly as, as a place where we pour our hearts out to God, you know, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you, 1 Peter 5. And it also functions to help shape our hearts so that we are more submitted to God and we start to see the world more the way he does. And in public prayer, that formative aspect of prayer is even more pronounced. We pray remembering that he is a God who delights to hear and to answer the prayers of his children. We also gather to hear testimony from God's people about how he has worked and how he is working in their lives. And so we had a wonderful example of that in Dean's life this morning and Scott shared with us last month. We share these testimonies publicly, but we also do so naturally, just in the conversations that we have before church, after church, hopefully throughout the week. We live in an age to the, to the point where these things are even being called out by like, the Surgeon General of the United States as, as huge public health concerns of anxiety and loneliness. People feeling cut off from meaningful connection and feeling unsafe or unstable as a result. And here in the body of Christ, we should be connecting with one another and feel free to share our burdens and to hear over and over how God has been faithful to those with whom we worship. And if he is the kind of God who can carry others through their hard times and through their difficulties, gathering with them and hearing those stories will help me remember that he can do the same for me, that he will be glad to do the same for me. And we learn that lesson by, by reading of God's past faithfulness in Scripture, but we experience that lesson when we see and hear of his past and present faithfulness in the lives of our brothers and sisters in the church. We need one another to help us remember how good and how present God is in every circumstance. Finally, I, I want to address what we're about to do, singing. We often think of the singing part of the church as the, the worship part of the service. And in the Bible, the idea of worship extends way beyond singing, way beyond a church service out into our whole life, that Romans 12 passage that we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices. That's a reasonable act of worship. There, there is a sense in which what we're doing corporately could be called a, a, a worship service, a, a gathering together specifically for worship. And singing is only a part of that. All of what we're doing here, praying, preaching, all of it, it's part of worship. However, while that might make it sound like it's making less of singing, do you know that the the New Testament points to a purpose besides just vertical praise when we're talking about singing. 
we're actually to sing to and for one another. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, we read, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. One way in which we are all to teach one another is by singing together. These words that we sing, they sink into our hearts, into our minds, even into our subconscious. I, I, I loved what, what Dean was saying there. Like, We could just sing, and it can just kind of be like something that we do. But do you, do you think about listening to the other people sing and being encouraged as you hear, like, I know something that's going on in their life, and now I'm hearing them sing of God's faithfulness. Like, when, when you start to put the pieces together that as we hear one another sing, we're not just going up. We're also ministering to each other as we sing. We're singing to one another. Look at him. We tell one another every time that we join the sing that God is worthy of our praise. We sing to remember who we are, a pilgrim people in a foreign land, singing together to remember the Lord who has purchased us with his own blood. We sing to remember the one who is bringing a kingdom, the one who has redeemed us from every trial, and the one whom you can trust in your present distress. Brothers and sisters, we must never forget the Lord. He is a father who loves to take care of us, a judge who put his son forward as the payment for the sins of all who will trust in him, and he is a kind shepherd who will lead us home. And he has given us one another to help us remember these things. So, so remember this week that, that the church gathering is something that you need. But also remember this, that the other people in this body need you. We serve one another by gathering together, and in doing so, we serve God. Let's pray. Father God, you are so kind. You are so good. You've, you've not just saved us and then left us alone. You've sent us your spirit to dwell within us, to be present with us. And you've given us one another. Lord, would you help us to be a people who lean on you and who lean on one another as we move through this life? Would you help us to serve one another well, love one another well? And would you help us to remember in every circumstance who you are, and what you've done for us, and help us to trust in you